Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today I'm, I'm really thrilled, you know, with the guests that we have joining us. Um, you know, she is a remarkable entrepreneur, someone that has uh, been there, has done it. Uh, obviously, several acquisitions, one more on the external side as an employee, the next one as a founder. Uh, and now she is on another rocket ship that she is building from the ground up. We're going to be learning a lot about making tough decisions as an entrepreneur, uh, also how you go about it, you know, especially with fundraising dynamics when the macro environment is not so welcoming, which is what we are seeing now. And then also as a female founder, you know, how you deal with, you know, some of the challenges that you may encounter when it comes to realities that you may experience in that regard. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Kamakshi Sivaramakrishnan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. It's a pleasure to be here. So, originally born and raised in Mumbai, in India. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Uh, Idlik, uh, big city. You know, we talk about uh, in the in America here in the Western world, big cities are like ten million, and it's a big city. Mumbai is a city of almost twenty million people, so you can get 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 easily kind of drowned and lost. But it was a great experience growing up there. It's going to you know develop street smartness. Social emotional learning happens on the streets <laughs> if you're growing up in Mumbai. Great experience there. Um, uh, a family that had no exposure to entrepreneurship. I didn't know what that meant growing up. I uh, came to the U.S. for my master's uh, to Boston University, went to Stanford for my Ph.D., uh, came at the tender age of 21 with about $3,000, which was I took from my father's what is called as Provident Fund back home. It's basically your retirement fund, and I was supposed to return that back to him because he was retired at the time. So I returned wow. that back in three months. and. Look, it's been an amazing story. I think I'm an outcome of, you know, the American dream. It's still true. It is still true. Well, in that regard, you know, coming to America, how, how, was, how was landing here? You know, you came here to do your master's in electrical engineering in Boston. But how was it? I mean, was it like a massive culture shock? Like, oh, my God, it, it, just like the way that I foresaw this in the movies. <laughs> That's a great question, Alejandro. I came, I landed on the shores of America back in 1998, and I'm dating myself at this time. And, you know, that was my first international flight. I hadn't taken a flight outside of India at the time. So it was a huge culture shock. Today's India and today's world is so much more like we live, relatively speaking, in a one world economy. When you think back to 1998, that wasn't the case. There was there were huge cultural differences between the world that I grew up in and the world that I came into. But I came in with kind of, you know, dreams in my eyes and kind of ready to take this on. And the experience has been nothing short of a dream come true, especially when you think about kind of an individual's journey. Maybe you can relate to this as well. When you kind of come far away from home, you immigrate into a newer land, you're doing it for a purpose. So at this point, can I say to myself that I have achieved a purpose? No, it's still in the making, but it feels very purposeful because I'm in the process of creating value in so many different ways that this journey has been enjoyable. I still look back to that day when I landed in the, on the shores of U.S. in Boston with very fond memories. 
So obviously going to Stanford to do your PhD, that was a pivotal moment because that gave you the exposure to the innovation that was happening, you know, in, in and out, right? But in your case, being there definitely also allow you to get the exposure into the venture world. And that's the moment where you decided to go head in, you know, into business with a company called Atmob. So how did that happen? For sure. I mean, you bring up such a great point. See, today, venture is relatively more democratized, like reach for venture capital to universities across the country here in the U.S., let alone U.S. Internationally speaking, we are looking at a more democratized world. I'm talking about circa 2001 when I started my PhD. Uh, we were still talking about a world where kind of Silicon Valley had more access to capital. That's why like, it's still the case, right? Valley is still, while there are so many more centers of innovation around the world, Valley is still kind of somewhere dominant in terms of the number of kind of the, the capital dollars at deployment, et cetera. This was very much true, certainly at the times when I joined Stanford. So, and especially when you come from other academic institutions into Stanford, it's a big difference. I, I'm sure you must have had some of your other guests talk about this as well. Entrepreneurship is, runs in the blood at Stanford. Uh, every student gets a very, very early exposure to it. And that's why it's such an amazing journey to be within campus and just experience it all. And you cannot escape it. I got my PhD in a field called information theory. This field is very theoretical. It's applied mathematics and statistics for electrical engineers. So people in information theory, this information theory, this field was born during World War II by a, by a preeminent mathematician called Cloud Shannon. And it was primarily for communication, so wireless communication, wired communication, uh, storage of data, compression of data. When you think about JPEG, MPEG, these are all. So it's all about how do you process information and you deliver value around entropy around that information. So this is a highly theoretical field. People in this discipline over the years since this field was born have generally veered primarily into academia because there's a lot of areas of research and problems to solve for in terms of how do you store process and transmit information, but people have kind of branched out and applied this into financial engineering, quantitative finance, and things like that. And with the emergence of internet technologies, they've also started out in branching into applying it into internet technologies with the prevalence of so much data. That's kind of the journey I went through at Stanford. During my PhD and the final graduating years, I stumbled upon the founder of a company called AdMob, this guy called Omar Hamoui. He's a fairly kind of gentle character, fairly kind of, you know, low profile, keeps a low profile, ran into him and then had a conversation with uh, the team at AdMob. I had offers from, at the time, Goldman Sachs and, Cit and Citadel and uh, Lehman Brothers and all the quantitative finance shops and Google and academia as well. AdMob was this kind of nondescript, unknown startup. Its offices were on in, in a city called San Mateo here, where YouTube was also born in San Mateo. The offices were above a, a bunch of sushi restaurants, so it can get to be pretty kind of interesting during the daytime. Imagine like, you know, the next morning with like a, a lot of like stale food, fish smell, if you may. It wasn't the most welcoming place, especially when you like Lehman Brothers and McKinsey and all like they roll out the red carpet and you go to the startup, it has this rinkety dinkety office and you're like, uh, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? 
like, but I met the team there and I was like, this is really interesting. I don't know much about advertising and marketing as it is done in, in, in the, in the digital world, especially in mobile. At the time, mobile devices were just flip phone devices. You just use them to make calls. That's it. And store some phone number, contact information. You didn't use them actively to browse the internet. So it was an amazing opportunity on like creation. It was right at the inception of creation of a mobile economy. And a bunch of really smart people came together at AdMob because these, we all could figure out where this would be. The current CTO of Microsoft, Kevin Scott, he's an AdMobster. I'm an AdMobster. Uh, there are so many other uh, sort of, you know, successful founders and entrepreneurs who are all from this kind of kind of community of AdMob uh, AdMobsters who came together to build that company. We had an amazing success got acquired by Google in uh, 2010, spent a year there myself. And then since then, I've had my own entrepreneurial journey. And each one of my fellow AdMobsters have done that as well. And it's, it was a great start for what and my introduction to entrepreneurship. And what do you think made the culture so powerful, you know, that it really attracted, you know, such level of talent, you know, people that you know, they ended up going to other companies and ended up doing other things with extreme success. What, what do you think cultivated that culture for all of these people to come together? I think it's like, you know, uh, the, a bunch of folks who kind of had the ability to identify kind of the right opportunity at the right time. And here was basically a bunch of smart people who are not being restrained by the bureaucracy of how to do things. Just let's just go ahead and like, excuse my French here, get shit done. Like that was the mentality that we had at, at, at AdMob. Um, it was unrestrained in the sense of when I talk about bureaucracy, it was unrestrained. Bring your best, we'll get it done. And that was something, and even like Kevin Scott, who is now kind of a a story of the legends when we think about everything OpenAI and Microsoft has kind of been catapulted into a whole level. He spearheaded a lot of that inside of Microsoft. And you can see that, like, you know, the sparks of that has existed way back in 20, 2008, 2009, 10, and 11 when AdMob was, was around. And it was Kevin, it was the founder, Omar Hamui, a bunch of other folks at, uh, at the company who created that spirit, right? And we were all kind of came together and we, Kind of that romance of entrepreneurship was, for many of us, was kind of, was born there. And then we all took it in our own ways and continued our own journey. Some of us are founders and in an operating capacity. Others are in a venture capacity with their own funds. And others are in, you know, senior executive level leadership in big tech companies, really creating difference and value. So that's an amazing journey. This is a point I would, I often talk about while a startup and a founder and an entrepreneur our primary job is to create value. And that's what we are here for, to identify an opportunity, create value and build awesome products. But an equally important value that we create, the true legacy of a company, of a bunch of people coming together, is the kind of opportunities you create for people who come and be a part of their journey. When they all go on in life and create their own successful stories. There's nothing more rewarding for a founder than the fact that a bunch of people who came around to build a company with you could go on and become more successful themselves in their own capacity. I think that's certainly something that AdMob did in our own way at Drawbridge, my company that I founded, we have done that. And I, I aspire to do that. That's what kind of keeps me kind of going. That's what helps me attract kind of people who come want to be a part of the journey. It's a journey. 
I love it. Now, in, as part of this journey too, when the company got acquired by Google for $750 million reported, you and a bunch of others, you know, didn't want to stay long. So, uh, you know, you ended up going at it. And this was the basically the time that you became a founder for the first time launching your own business. And that was be, bringing Drawbridge to life. So how was that process? You know, walk us through the incubation. At what point does the idea of the company come knocking and how were those sequences of events until you actually brought it to the to 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 life Alejandro I mean you talked about this question about uh, kind of admob right the culture of admob I think it's just you bring a bunch of smart people together you can never stop kind of ideation uh, and kind of creativity and the whole process of like the creative process doesn't stop that's the thing that happens when a bunch of people come together so we would all talk at admob about hey look we were at the cusp of you know mobile economy was simply breaking out 2007 the first set of smartphones basically broke into the scene mobile economy had not been created at the time we were talking about the promise of mobile economy we were just simply at the start of mobile commerce all of this required understanding how to market to consumers how to reach to consumers how to personalize to consumers in when they are engaging on mobile then you are confronted with this fact that it's not simply a mobile economy this is going to be a multi device multi platform economy there are going to be mobile devices ie your phones there are going to be tablets your traditional laptops are not going away desktops are not going away connected tvs you're talking about a very kind of violent there is fragmentation there is engagement happening on multiple devices and platforms and then you look and you see that you know the big tech guys are certainly very strong in so far as being able to personalize and deliver consumer experiences in this new world but how do you empower and democratize every brand to be as powerful if not close to being as powerful as can kind of, you know the big tech guys themselves a lot of that is around understanding consumer identity across can kind of, you know different touch points and engagements that's where kind of the genesis of drawbridge as the company was born and to your point of like we a lot of us left google very quickly within the first year or two of uh, the acquisition why google's an amazing place we love their experience there there's so much to learn right obviously there's the the learning curve is very strong at 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 big companies but at the same time all of us have a very strong edge and bug of entrepreneurship so we like a pace of development and really kind of have a disruptive process of being able to bring kind of new products and kind of you know uh, opportunities to market so that's why you saw a bunch of us leave and certainly i was one of those who wanted to go ahead and create this left and started drawbridge around the opportunity to kind of understand how our consumer experience is going to look like in this multi platform multi device world that's the opportunity drawbridge built toward 7 8 years since the founding of the company we exited the company to linkedin and microsoft it was an amazing opportunity b2b who would think that like you know multi device engagement is not simply a consumer experience it's also a b2b experience so that's where some of the intersect happened with with linkedin and microsoft it certainly we, i'm happy to talk about but that's kind of uh, my 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 hope here is everyone who's listening to the story surround yourself with right people because that's the, the the genesis of ideas happens when you have creative exchange and to your point of like you know funding financing at the time i was a first time founder when i went back to drawbridge to go and raise money myself and you know the having been a part of the admob process you see entrepreneurship close enough so you have learned 
you've had the benefit to learn it without having to be in the hot seat yourself. So that certainly helped me a lot when I was out there to go raise money myself. And success has a stardust effect to it. And, I, and I'm wondering too, like for the people that are listening there, because you alluded to it, how much capital, how did you capitalize the business uh, of Drawbridge? How much capital did you guys raised pr prior to the transaction with LinkedIn? We raised close to $50 million of capital uh, at, uh, at uh, Drawbridge, started with $6.5 million of Series A, and this was uh, back in 2011. And over the tenure of the company, about $50 million in, uh, in equity capital. And then certainly we had a bunch of debt, et cetera, that debt capital, that we, debt equity that we raised in the company as well. So uh, an eight-year journey, there was a lot that we went through as a business and grew into a certain scale that required both capital from an equity perspective. We It was around led by Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins at the time. We had additional investors, both on the corporate and on the venture side that we added through the tenure of the company and an amazing learning experience on how foundership, entrepreneurship, and, you know, a bunch of tough decisions that we had to take as well along the way. So let's talk about that. Let's, let's say double click on that or making tough decisions as a founder, because there was a point in time where you guys had to divest, you know, certain things to be able to increase the focus. So tell us what happened there and, 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 and what did you learn from that? Look, at, we were running two businesses. We were running a service-oriented business that was primarily um, our strategy to acquire data because we were building this uh, kind of uh, long before AI is so much kind of in front and center of our consciousness. But we were effectively using AI and self-supervised self machine learning algorithms to build an identity graph to understand kind of consumer footprint on the kind of broader internet, if you may. It's very data hungry. And so we effectively ran a service business to acquire data. And running that service business over time became, it was a means to an end. We knew that very well going in. And over time, it became less and less strategic for us. And it was, from a margin profile perspective, it was a lower margin business. So it, it was a part of our imperative to shift focus from that lower margin business after it had done its job of delivering us kind of the critical mass of data into kind of the more SaaS oriented model. So that is what spurred the divestiture. It was not something that was unexpected. It was something that had to happen and we knew it had to happen. And at a certain time, we had to divest it. But nevertheless, the mechanics of executing a divestiture, which comes with people, comes with you know product, comes with business, it's not easy to do that, right? Especially as first-time founders and first-time leaders or CEOs, when you have to deal with people, it's not easy to do that. And the learning experience is that, look, while the decision is very tough to take as founders, go in with the fact that, you know, become become comfortable with being uncomfortable. You have to li live with discomfort all the time, uh, whether it's on a day-to-day -day basis on small decisions or whether it is on kind of tectonic shifts like a divestiture, et cetera, that even if you know was planned when it is actually going to be delivered, it's a learning experience. How do you deal with people? How do you deal with customers? How do you deal with market? How do you deal with perception? How do you deal with your investors? These are all your constituents, your investors, your mar your employees, your market, your customers, your prospects. These are all like constituents of yours. How do you deal with them? Lots of learning experience. Communication is key. How do you communicate? Each one of them have different imperatives. Right? Your employee has a different imperative than your customer has a different imperative than your investor. So how do you communicate? 
communicate across all of them. These are all things that were an amazing learning experience for me. I'm a better founder, a better leader for having gone through it. I don't wish this on every, any founder, but it's likely to happen on many founders. We have seen that happen more so in the last few years and especially now than before. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then, so then when we're talking about mechanics here, why don't we talk about the mechanics of the actual transaction with LinkedIn? Because obviously that's a pivotal moment for you, you know, reaching the finish line. So how did the whole, you know, conversation with LinkedIn come about and, and make us insiders? How, that, how, how was going through that like? That's a great question. You know, see, again, speaking of learning experiences, a founder's job as much, especially technical founders, you're the heart of the technology, you're the heart of the product, but you're a heart of the sales as well. It's your sales, your salesperson number one for the company. You're also corporate development person number one for the company. So it is the founder's responsibility to have all the strategic partnerships, to be out there in market, to forge those kind of, to identify those opportunities, forge those opportunities, nurture them. For example, LinkedIn was one such. Uh, it's my job as a founder to be sales gal number one. It's also my opportunity to be product manager number one. It's also my responsibility to be the contact person number one. Usually startups and founders and small companies, when we're talking about 150, 200 people, we don't have a contact functionality. We have a business development functionality. We don't have a contact functionality. So a lot of these things are very organic. You know, it's it's there, there's this phrase of BD to CD, business development to corporate development. These are organic. They're natural. You already work with these like big companies because they don't have a capability or said capability. In our case with LinkedIn, they were working with us commercially before they thought that this is a great product. They had a chance to integrate it, test it out, really see the benefits of it. Hey, we would like to own this. So that's the best kind of opportunity. We were talking about this at one point earlier, Alejandro. Out of the majority of companies that get founded, most of them don't even see live long enough to see the light of the day. Out of the ones that are successful, majority of them are going through a merger or an acquisition, and a minority of them are going through an IPO. 
So the opportunity to, to learn how to forge all these strategic relationships, to understand the value that they present for yourself, to understand customer relationships is an integral part of every founder, especially when you think about technology and product founders. We don't tend to focus on these things. We are good at what we do, but these are skills that we have to develop. And for me, that was a great learning experience. And that kind of went done organically, results in beautiful relationships like what we had with LinkedIn. It was a great success. If I were to quote some of the you know executives inside of LinkedIn, they said that Drawbridge was one of the most successful acquisitions Google has made. Sorry, LinkedIn has made in its history, and that, I wear that with, the, with as a badge of honor. And obviously, you know, amazing outcome that it was reported in the several hundreds of millions. So, uh, so good stuff. Now, in your case, you know, as they say, once you do a deal like that, you got to engage into what they call the vesting and resting. You know, obviously, you know, you got to stick for a while, you know, really realize the value there, especially the one that you're getting on the back end as part of the deal. But then, you know, essentially, you know, like you were there as part of LinkedIn, Microsoft's environment where you were part of the office of the CTO. But as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And on around 2022, that's where the idea of Samoa is where it comes knocking. So what happened? Walk us through it. I mean, it's an interesting kind of point in my journey, right? As you can see, over the course of the last, like, at this point, I would say, give or take 15 years or so, uh, the, the common theme is data. So I've dealt with companies that have been at the forefront of algorithmic learning, algorithmic intelligence, whether it's for the purpose of advertising, marketing, or enterprise technologies. They're all fed by data. Data is kind of, you know, there's a greater and greater realization on how is data acquired? Who's sharing that data? What is the consent behind that data? Is that is that treated the way it should be? Is there a compliance requirement? There's so, so the, the value of data is getting more and more calibrated as, you know, we need to do right by that data. If you think about that, there is really no technology today out there that is super easy for businesses to integrate, enterprises to integrate among, into their stack and say that this technology allows me to work with my data in a private, in a secure, in a compliant fashion. It's, there's, there's, there are fragments of this. There are fragments of product and technology capabilities, of course. But if you think of it as, hey, I as an enterprise company, I join Microsoft, I join a big enterprise, I get my laptop, I get my devices, I get a few set of enterprise tools. These are productivity tools. I also get a data collaboration tool. I get a, basically a, 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 a data sharing tool that allows me to understand the value of my enterprise data, makes me that much better and stronger as an employee of the company. Such a technology doesn't exist. And this becomes intimately, you become intimately aware of this, especially when you think about marketing and advertising technologies, because they have to deal with data a lot. It's, it's, a, da it's a data-centric problem. So the idea for Samuha, while certainly happened within the last year, it was something that I was exposed to throughout kind of my professional career, whether it is from the times of my PhD into AdMob, into Drawbridge, and today where we are at Samuha. It was simply a matter of understanding, hey, let's try to kind of build a very intuitive experience that is as intuitive as a, as a consumer experience. You see, pandemic made every, my, my mom and your mom probably got to know about Zoom. Before that, there was no, no real awareness. We, people started talking about, hey, I'm sharing pictures on, on, on Google, on Dropbox. I'm like we, we've started connecting across productivity vectors. I'm saying five years down the line, Alejandro, 10 years down the line, 
the ability to collaborate with data, not simply share documents, not simply generate streams of consciousness in the form of chats, but actually work with like data by running insights, queries, workloads, building models. This is going to become a reality where every employee in a company would do that. Maybe consumers will do that. That's because there will be a collaboration technology that does best to date insofar as what can be done with data. I, we at Samuha want to build toward that vision. And a lot of that resides very close to where data sits on the cloud. That's why we build it as a cloud agnostic technology and hence our partnership with Snowflake, et cetera. That's at the heart of Samuha. That's the vision that we are building for. How do we make data super accessible while doing right with data? And obviously you were talking about Snowflake there, you know, which was part of the Series A that you guys did in February, um, uh, very recently. 30 million bucks that you guys raised for a Series A. So obviously different environment now, you know, raising money versus, you know, perhaps a year or two years ago. Walk us through what you have seen when it comes to fundraising dynamics nowadays. Interesting question. Um, you know, if there is something that I've gone through, I've gone through kind of two cycles, if not more, between kind of Drawbridge and Nasimuha. Look, I would say largely over the course of the last, this this. Economy in the U.S. and certainly the world over over the last 10 plus years has seen an amazing run, right? We are not probably going to see this in, again in our lifetimes. And uh, so as a result of that, capital was relatively cheap. And uh, as a result of which, you know, the ability to get funded for good ideas or even ideas, generally speaking, we went through some crazy times a couple of years back. So certainly at Drawbridge, I lived through times where it's not easy for any founder or product to be funded by like, you know, big guys like Sequoia, Kleiner Perkins, et cetera. Uh, we obviously had something great that we were building towards and we we were able to kind of uh, secure financing from some of the best in the world. But over the course of the last two years, especially with Samuha, I would say that you can feel the difference. Capital is more restricted. Uh, it is more expensive. You do get uh, good ideas will always get funded. If, if there is one takeaway that anyone in the audience can kind of take away with them, good ideas will get funded. Period. Hands down. Um, the economics of it varies today than it was there before, but it will get funded. So Samuha's financing was not a difficult exercise because it's rooted in a solid foundational value that is created for the world around us, certainly across B2B enterprises, if you may. So the opportunity to finance Samuha, we had multiple term sheets uh, at our bay, and we chose what were best partners for us. But that was not the case for every founder, for every idea, for every product out there. And certainly today, if it is .ai, that's a different kind of you know reality than before. But data infrastructures in service of AI technologies is a big part of investor kind of you know thinking and perspectives as well. So we are part of that story: solid data infrastructures that treat data well in a compliant, privacy-safe, secure manner, government fashion. So that's why financing Samuha was was not hard at all. The economics were certainly something that we processed well. We spent some time building 
product and understanding, you know, what we had to prototype a bunch of things. We had to understand what partnerships and opportunity and channel go-to-market models, et cetera, would look like. Hence, our set of opportunity with Snowflake. And that's when we went ahead and raised money. We didn't go ahead on like a, on a, on a, on a slide deck. We did go ahead and raise money after we had established some kind of runway and proven to ourselves and, and certainly to our investors that there is merit in this idea and we are able to go ahead and achieve this. So as a girl's dad, you know, myself, you know, I'm the father of three little girls and uh, you're certainly one of the examples that I would love for them to, you know, look, you know, and, and be inspired by because, you know, you've what you've done is absolutely incredible. I guess, you know, for you, I, I guess, you know, obviously the times are changing. The dynamics are also changing towards female founders, towards diversity, towards different accents, different colors, right? When, when it comes to venture capital, which is amazing. So I guess as a female founder yourself, what have been, and especially, you know, there's a lot of female founders that are listening to us now. What are the, some of the realities that you've experienced, you know, and, and, and perhaps, you know, something that you could inspire some of those female founders and even, you know, my own daughters, you know, with, with what you have experienced yourself. I mean, Alejandro, the highlight of my conversation today with you is that we live in America, both of us. Both of us have non-Native American accents. And look at the podcast that we are having. I love that. I love that about kind of the world that we live in. Yeah. To your point of kind of, you know, being a father to a daughter yourself, I'm a mother to a daughter myself. And uh, my daughter asked me uh, two days back, it is serendipity. Uh, she said, she's four years old. She asked me, mom, um, are you building a company? So I said, yes. She's like, can you tell me what, what do you do? What does a company do? So it was, it's, it's amazing that, you know, as a parent, I'm able to share with her and she has enough curiosity to understand and learn more about kind of the experience. But with that said, to your point of, there's enough ink that has been written about this over the several years. But are we at a place where the female participation at an executive leadership level, at an entrepreneurship level, at a founder level is where it is or where it should be. It's not. So I'm saying while there has been enough ink spent on it, we should still continue to talk about it because there's more work to do. We are not done yet. Uh, the world that you want your daughter to experience and the world that I want my daughter to experience from an entrepreneurship perspective or an opportunity perspective, we, we want it to be a better place than where it is today. So that's why we have to continue the dialogue. To the extent of kind of my experiences, it typically comes in with the fact that especially when you think about technology foundership and technology products, especially B2B core, SaaS, enterprise, hardcore tech products, it is even more the case that number of female founders in the room or female executives in the room or female leaders in the room, it's dominated. The, the demographic is dominated by males. That's kind of the, the, the demographic reality that we go through. My approach to that has been that um, over the years, I've gotten comfortable with that. And again, it kind of goes back to kind of get comfortable with being uncomfortable. There are not going to be that many people who look like you. There are not going to be that many people who sound like you. There are not going to be that many people who probably even kind of culturally and or even gender-wise can experience situation and process kind of circumstances same like you. But you kind of have... You have to get comfortable with that. And my uh, my approach to that has been 
to kind of embrace it as much as I can. And uh, I'm very aware that because I am among the fewer women in the room, if I do it well, it is memorable. If I don't do it well, it is also remembered. So I take it as a kind of responsibility to put my best foot forward, whether it's a customer meeting, whether I'm on a panel, whether I'm on a stage, or whether I'm kind of, you know, dealing with an employee situation. I try to take it and do the best that I can. And surround yourself. That we are, the good news is today we are in a situation where there are more women mentors. There are more women in the workforce. There are more women in senior leadership and influential positions. Surround yourself with them. With them. Find male allies. There are male allies who are intimately aware of this and are willing to support you and be there for, for you. And it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to express kind of a sense of weakness, a sense of fear, a sense of, you know, I need help. Raise your hand. Ask for help. I, I, I would say that each person, each individual will have their own journey, but with a broad trend of embracing it and with your own personal way of dealing with it, which is unique, you will you will contribute to a new ism <laughs> that will become a new ism after after you do it because you will be successful. It will become an ism. So I, I I'm not coming in with saying that here are the kind of three things you do as much as I'm saying try to bring your true self. You know, a lot of big companies from a culture value perspective they say that we want you to bring your true self. It sounds very platitudinal, right? But we as women have to do that. We have to bring our true selves. We have to give ourselves the chance. We have to not opt out of the workforce because when other priorities happen, we tend to choose other priorities over ourselves. Give ourselves the best shot. I if I can it. tell one thing to your child and my child, give yourself the best shot. And as parents, we give them the best shot to achieve that. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. For the people that are listening to us now, Kamakshi and they're, you know, wondering, hey, you know, I would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I, uh, I've been at LinkedIn, best kind of tool out there, safest, cleanest network out there. Uh, reach us out there. Find us on uh, on our website, samuha.tech as well. I'm very involved in all kinds of customer interactions, prospect interactions. Um, so easiest ways to reach me are at those two places. Amazing. Well, Kamakshi, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's an honor to speak to you as well, Alejandro. And hopefully there is one takeaway that I, I can leave everyone with is give yourself the best shot. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.